we open the Word of God today. And I know that the Bible means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I, I understand that. And people are at many different levels of understanding the Word or knowing the Word or having even read the Bible. And uh, I just want to remind us today that, um, that it, there is a brilliant cohesiveness to, to the scriptures that can easily be overlooked. And I, I take that from my own human logic as a necessary ingredient. I want a book. I want, a, I want a, what we would call a scripture. Some people would call it a holy book or a sacred writing, a collection of writings. But I want a book from God that I have the confidence that I know makes sense from beginning to end. I find that there's a brilliance in God's word of, of cohesiveness written by many different people over a long stretch of years. But I also find that it's relevant to my human experience. I don't want a book that is just um, uh, kind of so strange and esoteric or so uh, religious that I can't quite uh, make sense of it, that it, it doesn't relate to who I am and the needs and the, and the pain and the, the victory, successes, etc., and all the experiences that we have as, as human beings. I think it's important. There have, on, on my quest for God in my early 20s, I read different religious books and just couldn't make sense of them. They, they were saying things that just didn't relate to me as a human being. I think God gives us both of those things. That in the scripture, there is a cohesiveness that is brilliant. And the things that we read in here are relevant to the very inner core experiences that we have. So that when we read it, you think, ah, oh, I, I get that. There's something that's ringing true. The Bible says of itself that it is a supernatural book, that it is alive, that it is not just a, a record of history, it is not just a, a, a writings of, of beautiful sayings like we would find in the book of Psalms. It's not just a, a book of wisdom that, is, that we would find, for example, in the book of Proverbs. But it is all of those things, but it is a supernatural book that is alive, that has the ability, the capacity to divide our heart, to penetrate our heart and get inside of our thinking and our motivations and our choices, our worldview, as it were. Today, we are continuing on this collection that we call Quest. And the reason that I say what I've just said is that I believe that at our most primal sense, our most core instincts, there are these these quests that we have, these searches that we have, these places of sometimes emptiness that need to be fulfilled. And when I'm with God and when I'm reading his scripture, supernaturally, these things begin to be addressed. You see, God is a God who is not only brilliant, but he understands because he's created us. He understands what needs that we have. He understands that we are sequential in those needs, that we need something right now, but maybe next week there's something else. And God is in tune with that. In other words, he's not a cookie cutter God where he says, well, here it is. And that's just it. There are things today that I believe that God would say, boy, just for you right now in this stage of your life, this is what you need. But for somebody else, they're in a different stage. They're in a different place in their life. 
When God created the heavens and the earth, it really, when you look at the sequence, is amazing how he supplied the needs in sequence of what humans would require to be able to even exist on the planet. For example, when he started, he said, we've got to begin with light. They're going to need a source of light. They're going to need a sense of light before we can even get this thing going. What a great first step rather than operating in the dark. It's so simple, but so brilliant. And then we're going to need to separate the waters from the waters. They're going to need some a place that where they can breathe and a place where they can separate, a place where there's land, there's a place where there's water, a place that uh, they can have the most basic supplies to be able to exist and survive. They're going to need water. They're going to need trees that bear fruit and, and vegetables and, and uh, food. They're going to need beasts and that they can eat and... and um, and wild beasts that they can run from and all those things that, that, that make up this life. Not only that, God said, I just can't make it in such a way that it just, it, it's this, this wonderful event, but then it dies. I've got to be able to create this existence in such a way that it lives on in perpetuity. In other words, it produces and reproduces and keeps on going. So that when you see the, the, the brilliance of creation, you think, wow, God is not only an amazing God, but he's in tune with the needs of human beings as he is yours. It doesn't stop with the physical. It doesn't stop with just like you need bread and you need water and you need meat and you need veggies and all those things. You need tofu and tempeh, commercial for vegans. It needs, you know, you need more than that. You see, God is in tune with our emotional needs. So at the end of day six... When he had created all these things and he deemed it to not just be good, but to be very good. He was like, oh, A plus on this. This, this is what I had in my mind. I, I don't know, but I think that God had creation in his mind before he spoke it into existence. I don't think he was like, mm, okay, well, let's make trees. I will just make trees. It, it has more brilliance to that, more thought to it, more pre-thought to it. But at the end of day six, he noticed that there was an emotional need. Not just a physical need. We are told that God created man in his image. And, and that image, that what is that image? It's a relational image. And so here is Adam being created. And yet he's got this emotional need that, this, that has been implanted in him. But there's no way to let it out. So for that reason, God said, ah, oh, well, now there's a new need that has arisen, a need beyond sun and water and air and food and all those things. Now there's a need for companionship, a need for relationship. He said, even though this was very good, it is not good that man is by himself. So he went through this exercise. He said, let me bring the animal kingdom and maybe something we've already made will suit uh, this, this need that, that uh, Adam has. Now, come on. God knew that somehow uh, Adam wasn't going to hit it off with a kangaroo, right? We know that. And like, man, maybe it'll work. You may really love the kangaroo and then they'll just, you know, I don't, you know, of course not. God is too brilliant for that. You know who didn't know that? Adam. 
You see, I think God puts us through certain things so that we recognize our need. So that at that moment, we think, oh, I, boy, I do have that need. So, Adam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through the animal kingdom. I want you to name them. And at the end of that, we read that he found no mate that was suitable for him. And so he would go, probably have gone to God and said, I, there's a need I have. And God said, ah, I'm glad that you now recognize that need. I wouldn't have taken care of this need on day one. There was no need for it. You didn't exist. But now that we're past day seven, because he rested, now that we're past days, I'm going to now fulfill that need that you have noticed. You, Because of the way I designed you, you noticed that being alone was not good. I noticed it before you did, by the way. I kind of knew what was going to go on. But now, because I've put you through this lab and caused you to learn, now you know. You have a need. When we recognize that we have this need and we discover that the brilliant God of this universe comes to us and fulfills that need, guess what happens? We think, wow, we have an amazing God because he was the only one that could have met that need. You see, when Adam was alone, the kangaroo was not going to help him out one bit. Adam himself couldn't say, I got an idea. I think I'm going to fall asleep. While I'm asleep, I'll take my rib out by myself. And then I'll create this, uh, let's see, which I got, woman. I'll I'll create a woman. No, he was in a, a, a position where he not only had a need, but he understood there was one person, just one being, who could fulfill and satisfy that need. No one could have created the sun. No human being could have provided water. No human being could have created trees that bore fruit, that bore fruit, that bore fruit, that bore fruit. Nobody. We still can't do that. Only God can do that. Now we find ourselves after this brilliant production of what we call the human experience. We find ourselves in that moment in the garden when it happened. And we all, if you know the story, we know what the it was. Of all the things that were given to Adam, you cannot touch this one thing. And this one thing is will have profound consequences, consequences, honestly, that we can't even wrap our minds around today. But don't do it. And Adam and Eve, as you know the story, did it anyway. And they found themselves with a new need. See, I don't know, and no one knows actually, how many years they were living in the garden before they decided to disobey God. Could have been a thousand years. It could have been a long, long, long time. Could have been last Thursday. I mean, a week. We don't know. It doesn't matter. What we do know is that they had enough time to get used to a rhythm with God because he came walking in the garden and you can kind of read between the lines that he had, that they had this ongoing relationship with God. And now they find themselves on the darker side of the planet. I have to believe that in that moment they turned to one another and were told that they suddenly discovered Things are different. Something is off. We are exposed. We are naked. Why are we hiding? We've never hid a day in our lives. And we're hiding. 
they must have looked at each other eye to eye and said, you know what? Something's wrong. Something's happened. Something is out of kilter. I'm finding a need. And it's a need for for some sense of confidence because I've lost all confidence. There's a need to be covered because I'm feeling naked. And I can look at you even. You're naked. And I never noticed that before, strangely enough. And a new need came up. And as God satisfied the need of sunlight, of light, of water, of trees, of animals, of vegetation, of perpetuity, of a helpmate, of a wife, God understood at this moment there has been a new need that has arisen and only one person could take care of it. You see, Adam and Eve tried. They said, let me, let's cover ourselves with fig leaves. Didn't work. They were still hiding. And now we find ourselves in this moment where God enters the garden. You see, this collection called Quest is a collection of these, these core searches that we experience in life that are found in the scriptures and they're relevant to our lives. There was something that day that Adam and Eve experienced that we still experience today that is so relevant to the most inner chamber of our lives, of our emotions, of our thinking, of our motives that we'll see. In that day, Adam and Eve realized themselves. No one needed to tell them, you better hide. They hid themselves. No one needed to say to them, you're in big trouble. Something bad has happened. They knew themselves. They had the, they, they were put in this lab and they themselves, like we do, often have the instinct, I have a need. God came in the garden that day. And from this moment on, he asked a question. Because this whole collection is born out of the, some of the most core questions that we find in scriptures. God comes in and he asked a question that day. And I'm telling you, we're only in the third chapter of Genesis, but this question sets not a theme, but it sets the theme of the entire scriptures of, of, that we believe to be the word of God. It sets the entire theme of God's heart from that moment on in the third chapter of the Bible through the entire end of the, of the entire deal, the end of the scriptures. We begin in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9. God walks into the garden after Adam and Eve are freaked out. They're hiding. They've disobeyed God. And, we, and this core question sets the theme for all of scripture. But the Lord God called to man because he was hiding. And he asked this question, where are you? In other words, last week we began this collection by understanding that it was God's engineering that he implanted in our being, our DNA, a quest to look for him. The wisest man on the planet, Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that God has set eternity in our hearts. He has implanted that thing in our life that says, man, I, I, 
there's something more to life than this. Some people come to God at the lowest point of their life. Great time to come to God, by the way. It's one of those moments where you're sober to the fact of life that you have a great need like Adam. Others like myself were at the top of their game, humanly speaking. I was in a great school. Things were going wonderful. I, nothing was going wrong. I had all engines firing, green lights, and yet... Because of the way that God has engineered us, and yet at the top of my game, there was something inside of me that says, but this isn't it. This isn't all there is. There's some instinct that I have that there's something more. It's why missionaries have shown up in populations that are, uh, that we would say uncultured, perhaps uncivilized, that are more primal cultures, that no one has ever gone in and told them about God, about the plan of God, any of that. And yet, they will say, they will respond, we have been waiting for someone to show up. And we have anticipated this in our hearts. We can't tell you why. We've had dreams about somebody coming. Someone shared to me, shared with me not too long ago um, about uh, someone showing up, and they said we've been dreaming about a man who was going to show up and tell us about God, who would be holding a book. See, God implants these things in us, and at this moment, what happens is not only does God have a quest for us, but today's focus, as we see this question, is that now God has a quest for us. Not that we just have a quest for God, but God has a quest for us. Don't you find it kind of crazy, ridiculous, perhaps stupid that Adam was trying to hide from God? Don't you find that stupid? It's about as stupid as when we try to hide from God, by the way. I mean, it's like trying to play hide and seek with you know, someone who just knows all the hiding spots. And when we're kids, you know how it goes. We think we can do this and nobody sees us. It's like we're playing hide and seek. And it's fun to play hide and seek with kids because they're easy to find. I, I, for example, I brought some pictures with me today. Kind of like that. <laughs> you know, great hiding spot. Just remove the fingers. You, you think you're hiding just because nobody can see you. All right, here's one for you. How about this? Hiding under the bed. Well, it kind of works. Um, and behind the curtain, here's to that. that uh, that's pretty cool. Now, I know that, that many of you don't know what Adam looks like because we have no photographs or paintings. But take, take heart. This week, after deep excavating, I found the picture of Adam. And, uh, I mean, this thing is valuable. When I, and I'm looking through, I'm like, there's Adam. That, that's what it, exactly what it looked like. And the, here he is. That, there's Adam right there. <laughs> I mean, this is about how silly it looked for Adam to be hiding from God. Just about as silly as that, that when we do our stuff and we shut the door... And close, shut the light off and think nobody sees us. Come on. Jeremiah in chapter 23 reminds us of this. He says, can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? God says, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord, which is inclusive of your office. It's inclusive of your back bedroom. 
It's inclusive of your car. It's inclusive of what you do when you're dating, when you're out on Friday night. It's inclusive of every single cubic inch of this planet. So hiding from God seems futile. And yet, the older we get, the more sophisticated we get in hiding our stuff. You know, we want to say that uh, uh, we want to talk about Mary, but what we say is, you know, Mary's, you know, she does have jerk-like tendencies, but I say, but I'm praying for Mary. See, it's a sacred way of saying Mary's a jerk. But we wouldn't want to do that because we're mature, right? I mean, and we, we get more sophisticated in the way that we hide behind our, our stuff. So uh, it's the same for, for uh, the human experience. For example, uh, you know, instead of hiding behind a pole, now we get more experience in our camouflaging. I mean, who could lay on a stack of bricks and be camouflaged? Well, this next guy could. See, we, we look at that and think, well, it's no longer silly. It's no longer standing behind a skinny tree. It's a lot more sophisticated. And if you happen to be in Publix this afternoon and standing in the produce department and you happen to see this next guy, it'll freak you out. <laughs> I mean, you're going along and say, okay, like celery, tomato. Ah, what are you doing here? You know, guys dress like celery. You see, this is how we think we look when we get more sophisticated with our hiding. And yet in that, we read in the scripture, for example, in Job chapter 3, when daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and the needy. See, we can turn our back on those in need and think it's sophisticated and think God doesn't see it. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. When no one's watching my computer, he thinks no eye will see me. And he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. But see, Adam, I believe we think, well, he's just hiding behind a bush. I bet he moved around. I hear God wrestling. I hear in the background, Adam, where are you? Okay, well, we better pick a better place. This tree's kind of skinny. We, we better go to a, a bigger bush. Oh, there's a mulberry bush over there. Let's go over there. The voice got closer. Adam, where are you? Oh, my goodness. We better find something solid. We better dress like a rock and hide behind a rock. We better dress like celery and hide in the produce section. We better cut the lights off. He's here. Until that stark moment where he himself realized He himself realized, like the day he said, boy, I'm lonely, and there's only one that can fulfill my need and give me a mate. God put me through this whole lab of all these animals, and now I know I'm in need. There's a new need in town. And I believe that Adam moved around as we often maneuver until he reached that very sacred place It's a sober place. It's an awakening place where he said to himself, Oh my goodness, I am not hideable. Like the psalmist wrote in 139, Where can I go from your spirit? I bet he asked that day, Adam. Or where can I flee from your presence? You see, there will be a day, whether we think we're hiding now or not, where this reality, this will become As I said when I began, this will become 
relevant to the human experience. I'm not into scaring people with faith, and yet I would be irresponsible to not tell you that at the end of time, we all will stand before God in two different ways. For those who have embraced Christ, as we will talk about today, and found forgiveness and bridged a gap, we will stand before what's called the Bema Seat, and Christ will offer rewards and congratulate us and will be ushered into a new era that will be phenomenal. But for those without Christ, there is a sobering moment that you would stand before God, that you will stand before God. And in that moment, everything in you will tell you one word, hide, hide. It's not right. There's something wrong here like Adam knew. And that also will be worthless in the book of Revelation chapter 20, the next to the last, uh, a few chapters to the end of the Bible. The apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him, God, who was seated on it. Earth and sky who were standing before him. They fled from his presence and there was no place for them. This is a tough message. I would be absolutely unfair, remiss, irresponsible if I did not tell you that without Christ, you will be living in that moment as sure as you're sitting here today. In that moment when you say, literally, oh my, there will be nowhere to run. There will be no bushes, no rocks, and no produce sections to hide in. For that reason, God gives us a lifetime, whether that's 10 years old or 28 years old or 90 years old, whatever that lifetime is for you, a lifetime to discover like Adam in, in this human experience, where can I flee from God's spirit? The answer is nowhere, nowhere. So when Adam is hiding that day, I believe that he understands this and he understands his need. When people hide, they're afraid of something. When my kids do something they know that they shouldn't do, I'm a decade now into parenthood. You do start gaining some experience and you recognize the answers. Were you playing on your iPod when you should not have been? Uh-uh. You can feel it in the air, can you not? You, there's just kind of this, uh-uh. You, you, it, it just is what it is. Now, when they're, when they're being honest, not that I promise I wasn't doing it. It just feels natural. But there's that, uh-uh, that comes out that's manufactured and is apparent. You, you just picked right up on it. When they've done something big, like knock the milkshake over without a lid, which we've told them a zillion times to put the lid on the milkshake, and then the milkshake goes on the cream-colored carpet, oh, they're afraid. They know, rut row, something is not going to happen good in the next hour, right? Adam understood that something was about to happen. How do you know that? He hid. 
Easy. Easy solution. And he hid for two reasons, maybe more than that, two reasons, though, that are core to our human experience. Now watch. Don't miss it. At the core of our human experience, we understand like Adam that we're not perfect. We get that. If somebody has to convince you that you're not perfect, I'd like to meet you because I've not met a human being that doesn't believe that, doesn't know that instinctively. But the first thing, the first greatest fear at the end of the day in the most inner chamber of our heart is this. Will he love me anyway? You see, Adam is hiding. And in his heart, he's saying, I have really, really blown it. I've got to wonder if the God that I've had this amazing rhythm with, who is calling after me, who is in quest for me, I've got to wonder in the most inner part of my heart, since he knows my stank, will he love me anyway? You see, when I came to Christ, it took me two years. I was telling someone this story after the first service this, this morning. Two years. I grew up in a formal church. We didn't talk a lot about having a personal relationship with God. Didn't read the Bible. Didn't know anything about it. So God had maneuvered my life to, that I picked up the Bible. My mom had given it to me before I went to college. Three, three years later, I, I picked it, took it out, dusted it off, began to read in the Old Testament. Wrong move. I mean, see, back then, you, you, you dishonored your mother and father, and they took you outside, threw big rocks at you until you were dead, right? And so I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, man, I'm dead meat. It's over. I, I know I'm a moron. Nobody had to convince me of my imperfection, honestly. I'm a happy-go-lucky musician playing in a rock band, having the time of my life. I'm crying. In the Bible, never happened in my life. I never cried over anything. And I'm weeping because in my heart, 100%, I believed that God would not love me anyway. It is a very relevant experience for many people sitting around you where you work and live and play. It's a fear of why we hide from God. How do you hide from God? Let me tell you how we hide from God. We logically figure the whole thing out and say it's evolution. I was speaking to a friend once. She didn't believe in evolution. She just didn't want to believe in God. That's part of it. I don't want a personal God because if there's a personal God, I've got to deal with that. And I don't want to deal with that because I don't know if he's going to like me because I know me and I know he knows me. And if I know me, I know he knows me, then it's all over. I think Adam that day asked himself a question. Oh, man, I wonder if he still likes me. I wonder if, I wonder if the father still loves me. See, after I discipline my kids, I've learned to say, I want you to know I love you so much. I love you. You have to reassure them. Here's the second fear, I think, that Adam had that day that really hits at the chamber. There's going to be a price. 
You see, when the milkshake goes over without a lid on the cream-colored carpet, my kids know there's going to be a price. It's just our human nature. It's how we ought to be. There should be consequences to our action. When, the, when you see the cop car behind you with the lights on, you think, ah, man, it's going to be a price. I was, I was really bolting 80 out there. I sh- you know, I shouldn't have. There's, there's going to be a price. I wonder what that price is going to be. He mentioned death when we t- before we ate that fruit. You eat it, you die. That's why I'm hiding. I don't know if he even loves me anymore. And there's going to be a price. And he put the word dead, die, death on the consequence of that. And for that reason, oh, man. See, I think these two things reverberate not only through the scriptures, but our lives. Watch this. You remember David? Oh, King David, in rhythm with God, a man after God's own heart, just walking, moving, swimming, running with God until mm, it happened. I wish I could erase all the it's in my life until it happened with Bathsheba. And he looked down and he committed adultery. He was party to uh, murder. I mean, it just, it went off the chart. And David prayed in Psalm 51 when he came to, to understand there's a need here I can't meet on my own. I can't resolve it. I can't bring confidence back. And David prayed, have mercy on me, on me, O God. Not just because I'm a good person, because according to your unfailing love, I need to know you still love me. You see, he didn't say, hey, God, look, I did blow at Bathsheba and, and her wife and her husband, Uriah. I, I blew it. But look, I've fought, I fought a lot of battles. You remember Goliath? Remember that? Huh? 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 You ever talk to God like that? I got a lot of good things for me. I've never been to jail. I've never committed a crime. I've never done this, that, and the other. I mean, we start. It wasn't according to that. Our need is not according to what a kind of a good person. The need is that we're broken from God and only he can take care of it. David says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Take care of that love part. I need to know you still love me. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So the price, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Whatever price you say I got to pay, I know it's going to be right. I got it. I understand that. I understand that whatever it is, if you don't love me anymore, and if you if you kick my uh, my rear end out of the kingdom, and if you kill me, that I, I get it. I, I don't, I'm deserving of that. You, you feel it coming out. You remember the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. It's a story of three quests: the story of a lost sheep, a story of a lost coin, a story of a lost son. And this son knows he's blown it. He knows that he is in need of a quest from his father. And he begins to think through how he's going to go back to his father, how he's going to approach God. What religion could he create that would make it right with his father? Because that's what religion does. If I can just do it right, say it right, believe it right, make sure I get all my ducks in a row and I go back to the father and do, I'll do all that stuff and check, 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 make sure I get it right. Then... Things will be right. And so he begins to speak in Luke chapter 15, verse 18. The prodigal says, 
I will set out and go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be loved by you. There it is again. Thousands of years later, I get it. That you wouldn't love me again, I get it. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You don't have to love me anymore, he's saying. And he says, you know what? I know there's a price. You can make me one of the hard servants. I'll chop down trees. I'll clear brush. I'll pick up after the cattle. I'll do whatever because I know there's a price to what I did. You see, this theme rings not only through every page of Scripture. It rings through your life. I wonder if God still loves me and there's a price to pay for my sin. If you're unfamiliar with Christianity, I'm about to give you a snapshot that I believe so clearly tells us and points us to the heart of God. If you want to know the heart of the God of the Bible, you're about to see it in the response of the father of the prodigal son. You see, some people know God as creator. Before I became a Christian in my early 20s, I still believed that there was a creator. At least I was smart enough to know, I, you know, this didn't just happen. The, wa- the watch didn't happen because the, there was no watchmaker. You know, the, the, the parts of the watch just didn't come, to come together. I mean, I, I, at least I had enough smarts to know that. But I didn't know the God of the Bible. I just knew that there was a creator. So in the beginning, when we read God created the, the heavens and the earth, the name that's used for God is Elohim. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The word El means, let me break that down for you. That means power. I mean, a force of power that's beyond nuclear. You don't think God said, "Um, all right, let there be light. You don't think he said it that way. I mean, we're told in the book of Revelation that Christ is going to mount a white stallion and his sword is going to come from his mouth. I can imagine in that day when God said, let there be light, that heaven shuddered because Elohim means the powerful one, the strong one. But along the way, what happens is that God begins to reveal himself. Okay, that's not all I am. I'm not just this powerful creator, God, who spoke the universe into existence. I'm also a God who provides. My name is also Jehovah Jireh the one who provides. It's how we begin to learn who God is. He begins to reveal these names. In the second chapter of Genesis, now it's not just Elohim, it's Yahweh, the Holy One who reveals Himself. Look, here's the deal. When we think about God, Elohim, the Creator, the powerful Creator of the universe, running a quest after us, it's mind-blowing. I mean, I'm still blown away. My wife still pursues me after she knows me. Aren't you? Come on, Gerhard, give me some, right? I know you, man. Yeah, you're a saint, chick. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, the people that really know you well, isn't it miraculous that they're still pursuing you? And they're not God. Elohim, the creator of the universe, pursuing me. Wow, what a quest. 
this prodigal goes back and says to his father, I don't blame you if you don't love me. And I'll pay the price, whatever it is. The picture of the God of this Bible. But while he was still a long way off. You see, this prodigal didn't come and say, I fixed everything. You remember that inheritance? Doubled it. Remember all the friends? Forsaken them. Remember all the things I've done? Oh, I've rectified them. No. God meets Adam when he's still a long way off and he does you too. Don't let any religion ever remotely give you a hint of convincing you that somehow you can get good enough to approach the Father. You can't. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. The God of the Bible is a God of quest. The God of the Bible is one who is, doesn't have an ounce of compassion. He's filled with compassion. David prayed it according to your compassion, O God. Blot out my sins. He was filled with compassion. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. He loved him. He gave him assurance. He gave him confidence. You want to know something? In this culture, I'll remind you that rich men didn't run. It was undignified in this culture. How do you know he was rich? He had servants. He had land. He had cattle. He had a fattened calf. He had an inheritance to give away. He was a rich man. And rich men didn't run. Neither does Elohim. But I'll tell you who does. Because Elohim is not the full picture of God. Perhaps you just know God as Elohim. Perhaps you just know God as creator. But see, one of the names that God reveals, he revealed it to David was this name, Adonai, a personal God. Watch this. In your English Bible, your translation, it's difficult, impossible to pick up on these names of God. You have to dig a little bit to get to them. But in many translations, King James, New American Standard, etc., in many translations in the Bible, what they will do is capitalize all the names of the word Lord at times. When it's capitalized, and then you'll see it right next to there, as you see on the screen in Psalm 8, verse 1, for those who are listening. O Lord, all caps, our Lord, only the first letter cap. There's a reason for that. When it's all capped, every single time, in certain English translations, if you have a good one, that means Yahweh, the name that was so holy that it could not be even spoken in the Hebrew culture. What's saying, what's David is saying here in Psalm 8, O Yahweh, Holy One, our Lord, our Adonai. You know what Adonai means? Watch. Owner. Owner. Why do I bring that up? I'll tell you why. David goes on to say in, in Psalm 8, verse 3, 
When I consider Elohim, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you are questing him? What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care? Because he's Adonai, the owner. Watch. If you're a renter, if you rent your home and something bad happens to the roof, guess who you're calling? You're calling the owner and saying, hey, just let you know the roof of your house just fell off. I'm a renter. It's not my deal. The onus is on you. The burden is on you, right? I'm a renter. Well, I, I don't like it. I'm moving out. Guess who pays the note to the bank every month? The owner pays the... In other words, the responsibility is on the Adonai, is on the owner. Watch. If you've ever wondered if God could still love you, he has to. You're his property. He cannot turn his back on what he's created. It would go kaflui in his system, and he has no kafluiness in his system. He's perfect. There is no doubt because we know who God is and who we are. We're his possession. And he will not turn against us. We're told in Psalm 100 verse 3, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So this quest for God to meet this need of fear that we had, like I wonder if he still loves us and I wonder what the price is going to pay became very tangible throughout the years as it culminated in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, God said, I just don't want you to live with a concept because concepts doesn't, a concept does not take away the fear of anybody. You need to touch something when you're afraid. Oh, I'm afraid I need to touch something. So God throughout history understood this need. He sends his son and, he, and his son begins to say, you know what? I'm going to love you anyway. And guess what? I am going to pay the price that you've been so afraid of paying. That you're going to have to pay the price. No, let me let you be rest assured. I'm going to pay the price for you. Watch Romans chapter five, verse eight. God demonstrates, he demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still hiding, that while we were still a long way off, that this penetrating love came forth through Christ who died for us. We all like sheep have turned, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid the responsibility on the owner, not us. By the way, that's the best news you'll ever get in your entire life. For all the Adams in the room that are wondering, I wonder if he can still love me. God just didn't write it. He lived it. He said, yes. Yes. Quit hiding. The price is paid. It's done. It's finished. It's a brilliant plan. It's a compassionate plan. It's a simple plan. It's almost so simple that we just scurf right over it. But today, perhaps you, like I did on May 2nd, 1982, maybe you'll say, I don't want it just to be a plan. I need it in my life this is a need that I have that I'm tired of wondering. And I need today to know 
that the gap between God and I is done. God would say, then reach out and understand not only that Christ has died for you and has come back from the grave for you, but understand that you have to embrace it through faith and say, it's mine now. It is not just a plan. It's personal. God, I need your forgiveness. I need to know not just a creator God. I need to know the running God, the one who runs towards us. Now, as I close, let me address those of you that have already gone through this intersection of faith, your followers of Christ. Because many of us, most of us perhaps know this story. We know this brilliant and simple plan of God. But there is a message for us because the familiarity of this plan of Christ can often blind us because we know it so well. And we exempt ourselves from the story. But we're very much part of the story because we're called dearly loved children in the scripture for those who follow God. Watch this. You know I use this verse a lot. I think it's important. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, be imitators of Adonai. Be runners towards people who are not runnable toardable. Is that a word? Be imitators, therefore, of those who know without a shadow of a doubt that God loves you anyway and the price has been paid. I'm speaking to you, God said. Be imitators as those who are recipients of this magnificent, brilliant, simple, compassion-filled plan. I'm speaking to you, God would say. You're part of the story. Be imitators of God and watch. Live a life of love because people in the world will not get it anywhere else. They're used to people treating them as they deserve. They're used to people snubbing them, cutting them off. They're not used to people loving them and running toward them from a long way off. You're part of the story too. And he says, look, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up and paid the price as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'll never forget when I was a freshman in college, I learned a life lesson that you cannot learn in a textbook. Many of you know that I'm a musician in the past and, and, uh, and I went to music schools and blah, blah, blah. And so my freshman year in college, there was a guy in our freshman class who was about 20 years older than we were. And he uh, was a brilliant organist. He just got a late start in college or something, a brilliant organist. I, I've never seen anybody play literally like he could play. It came around three or four months into the freshman year. Now we're in December and he hired me. He saw my skill set and said, I, I could use you for a big Christmas production that I'm doing. He's hiring brass players and percussion players and woodwind players and strings and violins, very high level. I came to the rehearsal unprepared. I didn't practice. I was the freshman. About 20 minutes into the rehearsal, he could hear me just goofing notes up, playing, as we say on piano, in the cracks instead of on the keys. That's what it means to, you know, goof up. He stopped the rehearsal. The room was packed full of these high-level musicians. We're rehearsing brass players, percussion, strings, clarinets, woodwinds, singers, choir. He stops the rehearsal. He turns to me, not privately, publicly. Steve McCoy, 
Yes. Have you prepared for this rehearsal? Uh huh. I learned it when I was a kid. Uh huh. We all knew better. In front of everybody, he turned to me and said, You're fired. To this day, I have never shown up to a rehearsal unprepared. I'll thank him one day if I see him. But the consequences. He didn't act like he didn't like me anymore. He didn't like me anymore. (laughs) And he acted like it. He snubbed me. He talked behind my back. He created other people not to like me. He created a reputation that was not positive. And I never got hired by him. And there was a price. You see, this is how the world works. You hit me, I hit you. I'll hit you twice, in fact. See, the world is waiting for someone to run to them. They're not used to it. They're waiting to hear the sound of running footsteps. They'll say, I will love you anyway. And you stink just like I do. You're not deserving of love, and neither am I. You see, i got some common ground with you. God has met a need in my life. I'm a dearly loved child. I've got a confidence that I have someone that paid the price. You remember when God came across Adam or Cain. He said, hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? You know, he still asks us that today. Who are you running toward? Who is unlovable? And Cain says, hey, dude, really? Am I my brother's keeper? God says, yes, yes. You're still part of the story of redemption. Even if you know it well, especially if you know it well. You see, we have a God that runs toward those who are a long way off. And he's expecting us to be imitators of that. Let's pray. Father, oh, what a brilliant plan. Oh, my goodness, what a brilliant plan. That you saw the human primal need, God, of being loved. You saw the need of being soothed of our fears. I'm so glad, God, that that the plan didn't stop with just brilliance. But the plan is compassionate. And when we're hiding behind a bush, God, and we're separated from you, Compassion outweighs brilliance. David prayed, not according to your brilliance, blot out our transgressions. Not according to Elohim brilliance, but according to your Adonai compassion. Compassion for those you own. God, thank you for this compassionate plan. Today I pray, we pray, I engage those who are believers to pray in this moment. 
We pray for the Adams and the prodigals in the room who feel that if God didn't love them, it would be deserved. Or who feel that they've worked things out so that they, they can actually approach the Father because they've rectified the situation. I pray, God, for those who are afraid because they feel like there's always going to be a price because that's how the world has treated them. I pray, God, simply for those who have not embraced Christ today. We pray together. And I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit will do something that no man or woman can do, God. And that is to bring alive your word today. That while we were a long way off, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet Adams, while we were yet prodigals, while we were yet hiding, Christ died for us and paid the price. Oh, God, would you stir that in the hearts of those in this room today who have not bridged the gap. I pray, God, for the power of your word to come alive that they will reach out in simple faith and say, God, I need you. I need a running father who is coming towards me. I pray today they will find salvation in Christ. I also pray, God, for those dearly loved children in this room, those who have been recipients of this brilliant, compassionate, simple plan who are now followers of Christ. Oh, God, forbid it in our hearts that we would say, am I my brother's keeper? And recognize today the heaviness, the weight of being a runner too, if we're going to be like Adonai. People are sometimes the most unlovable, God, in the most greatest time You've called us to run toward them. Oh, God, help us not to disregard your call today. I ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.